Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hi, it's Violet here. This week, we are visiting a pivotal moment in the Roman invasion of Britain, in the company of the acclaimed writer Christopher Hadley. He takes us on a fascinating journey down a lost Roman road through the centuries. As always, there are images on our website, tttpodcast.com, to illustrate this episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Christopher Hadley. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I have to come clean and admit that I loved your last book, Hollow Places. I read it, I think it was during one of the endless lockdowns, yeah. and um, it was one of the most unusual and fascinating books I've ever read. And I did actually Google you, which is um, maybe a bit of a stalkerish thing to do. But I wanted to see if you were writing another book and if I could in- invite you on Travels Through Time. So here we are. And today we're going to be talking about your second book, I think. Is it your second yes. book? Um, which is called The Road, A Story of Romans and Ways to the Past, which is equally as fascinating as Hollow Places. I've been trying to think to I've been trying to think of a way to encapsulate to the listeners what is so special about these two books and the way that you write about history and the only thing I could come up with, and uh, and as you know, I'm not um, feeling very well at the moment, so we're going to blame <laughs> that rather than my lack of articulateness. I I would describe it as micro history with a universal vision. Does that okay sound? That sounds good. How we're being very kind. How would you? Don't ask me. <laughs> how would you describe it? <laughs> oh heavens! Don't ask me to describe my own books. I find it so hard. In fact, one of the lovely things about people talking about it or you get a tweet or a review is that other people who are much better at kind of that, that elevated pitch of my own book or a synopsis <laughs> of what I've actually done. Uh, so I find things think, oh, yeah, that's uh, the micro history with a universal view. I like that. Well, shall I just read what Dominic Sandbrook said about Hollow Places, which was your first book? He said, impossible to summarise and delightfully absorbing. Hadley's book is comfortably the most unexpected history book of the year. I think that's quite well put. I was very you. pleased with that, yeah. <laughs> that's very nice. <laughs> and, but he says it, impossible to summarise. I kind of write the book to... I've sort of said in my grumpier moments when people ask me what the book's about, I just say, well, it, you know, I had to write it to find out what it was about. So you, you could read it and find out what it's about. But I suppose it's a mixture of things. They tend to be... I, I like to focus on something small. And uh, so, yeah, definitely micro-history, probably unsung. And then... So tell a mixture of the detective story of my process as I try and figure out why I'm interested in this thing and come at it and contemplate it, you know, come at it from all sorts of directions. And at the same time, using it as a way to talk about our relationship with the past and how the past makes us feel. And I feel I have a slightly wider orbit than a professional historian. I, can, I, can, I don't want to say I can get away with more because I try and be very scholarly. I try and be very clear when I'm using my imagination and when I'm not. So everything, everything's factual, uh, but I think I can bring in things, partly because I'm allowed more time than a professional historian would be to contemplate these small things, but I'm, I'm allowed to bring in things 
like in the road, you know, with the poetry and the botanical stuff and contemplating how you how we can see the road in, in different ways and and how is how we try and time travel in our when I talk about you know ghosts and retrocognition <laughs> and at one point and, and using graphic novels to to illustrate how we might think about the past and yeah so I think I have a it's really a contemplation of a of a small thing. I think that's one of the most magical things about it is and and I think it's something I've I've talked about before in other interviews because I think that historians certainly academic historians you know are more nervous about admitting how much you have to use your imagination and you know writers like you and 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 myself as well because I'm not an academic historian we have more freedom and and using your imagination and, and being able to conjure up the ghosts of the past and try and see see back into the past i mean that that's that's history isn't it i mean that's what we're all doing yeah absolutely i mean i, I do like the fact that you can just to be honest about that so i think i write somewhere and it's probably in the footnotes in hollow places but about using the maybes and possibles and you, you, you read some historians really try and get rid of those and say this they don't uh, it's partly to do with sort of academic historical education, but I think they're discouraged from doing that. Um, whereas I like to say, or maybe a possible, and well, so much of it is, is maybe, yeah, absolutely. A professor at King's London, King said he what he really liked was how I second guess myself in, in my footnotes. So I will we'll say, well, I've yeah. said this because I like to have it both ways. If someone has thought something, I will tell, I'll tell that good story and then I'll tell you why it might not be true. I think it's, it's not just that. It's not just about the fact that we can't always be sure about what happened in the past. It's also about acknowledging the cultural baggage we bring whenever we start thinking about the past. And that affects our, our, our understanding of the past, our reading of it. Uh, and it's part of the fun of it uh, when... I talk about reconstructing a Roman road. I want to bring to it those things people have thought that may not be true, uh, and the things that occur to us as we walk along the Roman road at, at dusk. And years ago, when I was first getting really interested in nonfiction writing and sort of literary nonfiction writing, I came across a phrase from John Hursey, the American writer who wrote about Hiroshima, and he talks about the legend on the license. And the legend on the license has to say, "None of this is made up," and I hold to that. But I think it's fine. I think it's fine to go a little bit beyond what he meant by that, as long as you're really clear to the reader what you're doing. So, you know, when when you when you're imagining things or you're not sure something's true, then you say so. But I'm going to write about that as well because that's yeah, I say part of the fun of it. Yeah, well, it certainly makes for a much richer, more interesting book. Thank you. So, tell us a bit about how you came to um, write these books. So, what's your background? Well, I've always been a writer, a journalist. I was a journalist for a number of years, and then I stopped to look after the children. So this Hollow Place has really got started. I've got three three children. When they were young, I was looking after them. Uh, my wife's got a proper job. We'd moved out to uh, this village in Hertfordshire, and I felt kind of quite adrift. And the way to sort of get get used to sort of having moved out of London and living here was to sort of get to know the place. So I just started doing what a writer did. I sort of thought of it as a writer and researched it as a writer and started to find interesting stories. So Hollow Places really initially grew out of that, of finding, finding out this legend of a dragon slayer and then starting getting interested in that tomb and getting quite nerdy and obsessive about it and collecting everything I could find about that tomb and starting to make notes for a, a book. I just suddenly thought, yeah, this will make a good book. Whether I could ever convince anyone to... To publish it would be, be another thing because it seemed a bit batty. You know, my, age, my agent said if I pitched it 
you know, while I was still uh, right at the beginning, it's unlikely anyone would have taken it on. So it was it was quite close to completion when I finally went to someone with it. And uh, yeah, they had obviously done a half decent job at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I, I started writing. And the road, the road's a bit part in in hollow places. Remember the people spotted that, but the tree, the the yew tree where the dragon slayer was said to live by the uh, in the nineteenth century, uh, run, run is right by this Roman road. So it sort of has a, a bit part in that, and then I, I pick it up in in the second book. And both, obviously, so as you say, both of these stories um, are rooted in this very specific place, which is, I assume, where you live. So yes, close to where I live. Yeah. In in introduce that corner of Hertfordshire to to us all, will you? What's it like? Yeah. Yes, it's not that far from London, so we're sort of about thirty miles from London. We're between London and Cambridge, but it seems feels quite remote. It's not on the way anywhere, sort of centred on the, the, the Pelhams in Hertfordshire, uh, nice long history back to Doomsday and beyond, but nothing, no, nothing of huge significance, there's no great monuments out here, uh, so everything's, it, it is about dwelling on, on, on the tiny details and making the most of all the tiny little stories about the, 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 the field names and you know, local local legends that have been passed down to us. There have been sort of enthusiastic vicars over the years who've left local histories from the 19th century onwards. Um, quite interesting characters. And they, so I suppose they've formed some of the foundation of my early early research. Um, there's, a, there's a guy with a wonderful name, Wilma Wigram, who's a character in... I say a character as if it's fictional. But he, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he crops up quite a lot in hollow places. And again, he, he's... He's mentioned in passing in the road because he writes this wonderful letter about how he goes out and and, and finds the road in the uh, sort of 1860s and, and and follows its course and interviews the farmers about it, which is actually you know fantastic evidence because archaeologists will think this road has only been discovered recently. One of the big questions about any Roman road is when it went out of use, um, and so here's evidence that you know the farmers knew where it was in this area in the early 19th century and we're still using stretches of it and and also remember it being dug up because they would take the stones and use them elsewhere to not make not much stone in this part of the world um yeah and that's so important isn't it that people were out before this history gets lost and there is so much you know you it's similar to with local um songs i know there was someone who i can't remember the name in the i think in the 19th century and they went around the country recording folk songs because so much of this stuff gets lost because it's local and it's sort of quite a ground level it's not being written about by the big you know gibbon and macaulay and people like that yeah I think one of the themes running through hollow places is that idea of loss and memory or memory and forgetting. And you have this you have this trend that certainly comes in the Enlightenment of getting rid of this stuff, of throwing things away because they've got silly folk stories written about them or there's foolish folk tales. And uh, that really gets me quite wound up. I mean, I think it was a necessary process at, at the time. But when you read, I mean, I write about in hollow places about uh, there was a leg bone of a giant that was, it was, I think it was in the Ashmolean. It's in the first catalogue, but sort of 100 years later, it's been thrown out as nonsense. They decided, I think it was the leg of an elephant. And then they said, well, we don't need to keep this. And it's thrown out. But, you know, it had this wonderful sort of folk history going back you know, a few centuries there where people thought it was the leg of a giant which is just as important as the fact it's it's not the leg of a giant it's something else yeah and that's really the way into their mindset isn't it by just taking everything on face value and saying well that's what they believed and that's sort of what you were saying earlier about bringing your own baggage and every generation of historians brings their own sort of 
that that's so dangerous because then actually we completely misunderstand the people of the past. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really hard. You, you've hit that on the head there because it's really hard to get at the mentality of people in the past, especially ordinary people. And so, some of the only things we have are these stories and their beliefs. And so it's very important to, to try and preserve them and, yeah. and uh, yeah, write them down. A new generation. Um, well, that was one of the things that I loved about both books was you said earlier the characters and and they do really come through as characters. These incredible men and they are depressingly nearly all men, but we won't dwell on that. Um, <laughs> but the 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 ordnance survey map guy, Uncle o- Ogs, Uncle OGS. Um, t- yes. T- tell us yes, a bit. Of, <laughs> tell us a bit about him um, and the role that he played in mapping Roman roads. So he was this incredible, irascible character who, before the First World War, had had been out in the in the Middle East and he had seen uh, he had seen sites being photographed with cameras hanging from from balloons, which had given him this idea of of uh, you know great use they could be put to in, in aerial photography. People had known about crop marks, you know, the fact that you know the corn and the soil could could show the remains of things things buried underneath beneath the ground. But the higher up you got, obviously, the more, more obvious these things were. So he was lucky enough to be made, I think he was the first Ordnance Survey archaeology officer. So this is a time the Ordnance Survey was a very military organisation. He, he was a one-man archaeology department in the Ordnance Survey. I think caused great confusion there as he'd disappear off for days and end on his bicycle, visiting all these various archaeological sites. And he starts this... Uh, this incredible archive of aerial photographs by going to the RAF and doing deals with them and, and getting hold of, of images. And he's said to have done, in a very short space of time, to have done more for archaeology in the early 20th century than anyone else. Yeah, and, he, and he's just he's an incredible character. And you have a series of kind of quite interesting characters within within that Ordnance Survey Field Archaeology Division that you know, survives up until the 1970s eventually and does so much good work. Because then there was also the man who named all the Roman roads and tried to was that that was someone different wasn't it and they're all RR yes uh, yes that's Ivan Margari yes he's he's the the probably the most important figure in the history of the study of Roman roads in Britain uh he was independently wealthy and was able to spend his time sort of driving around the country uh studying Roman roads uh and and wrote this book in the which goes in, I think, uh, goes into its third edition in the 1970s, which is the important one. Yeah, he travelled pretty much all the known Roman roads, and, and he gives them a number. So he has this numbering system, which has its flaws, but is still used today. Uh, so, you know, this Roman road number one is, is Watling Street, and this is the first Roman road the, the, the Romans build when they, they arrive here, sort of branching out from, which, from Richborough on the Kent coast and eventually, eventually reaching, reaching Roxeter. Yeah. Amazing. So technology, as you've briefly mentioned, has played a really important role in uh, mapping not just Roman roads, but also uh, other settlements from um, from the past. Can you tell us about, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, LIDAR? LIDAR? Yes. Yeah. So like, re- LIDAR recently, it's a, I mean, it's incredible what people are doing with it. It essentially is you send a light beam to the Earth and you can measure the speed at which it comes back, but you have different different returns. So say you were aiming the LIDAR at, uh, at Woodland, that you get your first return when it hits the canopy of the trees, but it will keep on penetrating until it hits the ground. So you get all these many, many returns, which with a computer attached to it, you can then map the terrain incredibly accurately. And so it shows up 
all these these sort of minor variations in the in the ground you can strip away the tree line if you want to and so there's a along my roman road there's a stretch of agar the causeway that carried the roman road that survives in woodland and you can see it beautifully it shows up on lidar because you can actually the computer can strip away the trees and the vegetation and then you see this sort of slight disturbance in the in the earth and so it's it's really revolutionized the study of, of roman roads in last few years with a lot of people a lot of enthusiasts sort of re-looking at lots of roads and and where we expect to find roads and lots of well-known roads where the course was not quite clear and, and being able to track it using the lidar information which is freely available from the department of the environment um so it draws these these really quite a lot of this, a lot of the um a lot of the evidence for roman roads is also quite beautiful especially the, you know, the aerial photographs are works of art and, and these sort of lidar maps that people create i think they're they're fascinating to look at uh they, they have multicolored ones they sort of the environment agency put them out sort of grays and sort of strangely sort of colored greens but uh once people start getting hold of the raw data and putting them into their own software they produce these beautiful colored maps which they can rotate around which show the topography in ways we've never been able to to see it before yeah, incredible technology, mainly mainly used or initially used to find sort of floodplains, and but obviously been adopted by archaeologists to to look under the ground again and find find how the earth has recorded what's happened in the past. Yes, there's a brilliant lidar image in your book, and I hope we might be able to put it on the website to show people because it's really yes, definitely. it's very difficult to explain why it's so amazing but it, i don't know it, it, it and it shows that your roman road absolutely perfectly um so you you found it while you were researching hollow places there's a, a part of it that goes through your village yep tell us what happened next okay so it's interesting when people ask me why this road why i walk this road and it's really simple i think they come at it they, from the idea that i decided to write a book about roman roads and then I look for the ideal road to write about as, uh, as my example, because that's we talked earlier about how I like to write. And, and I can't remember who said this. I must look it up. But uh, this idea, if you're going to write about butterflies, you should write about a butterfly and, and use that as a way to get at the general subject. I think I'd be hopeless at writing, starting off writing about Roman roads, because I would never get past the first one I started to write about. <laughs> So I certainly didn't proceed like that. I proceeded because I became fascinated in this particular road. So we're in the, we're in the northeast corner of Hertfordshire, going into Essex or towards Cambridgeshire. And it's this sort of clayland landscape and quite flat, but with lots of local topography. So I talk about in the book about there being very little middle distance and the land's all folded in. It's kind of quite secretive and intimate. And uh, I just, I walk this Roman road and it's wonderful because you don't know it's there. And there's kind of a real pleasure in sort of thinking, I, you know, I know this, this, this Roman highway here, but no one, no one else can see it unless they've like looked at LIDAR maps or, or know the clues to look for. If I was going to write about a Roman road, there's lots of other sort of little local roads I might have written about, but I don't think I'd have chosen one of the big ones, like the Watling Streets or the Ermine Streets. Uh, I like the fact uh, this is secretive and hidden and that just makes it so much more beguiling and that you have to piece it together out of all these little scraps of clues of parish boundaries and letters left by vicars and sort of earthworks in woodland. And I also got permission, if you like, to sort of think, OK, this is the right road to use because Oliver Rackham, who was the great historian of the English countryside, 
right to how these little roads that have not really survived, they've not been followed by major routeways now. My road has about about one and a half miles. It's so short, it's only about 14 and a half miles. But about one and a half miles of it is followed by modern road. Uh, and the rest is just lost over fields and woodland and its footpaths and bridleways. And he writes how these sort of roads are so much more eloquent because they haven't been destroyed by development. Uh, and they're so much more eloquent than, than the great the great routes. And he chooses this one as his example, so of my road, and talks about how it's lovely how people, where it is still open and still used. You've got to imagine for 2,000 years people have been clearing it. They've been cut, Locals have been cutting back the brambles and the blackthorn to keep it open because... One of his principles is that once a road goes out of use, it's gone out of use forever. It gets taken back to nature. Um, and so if it's continued to be used or was any stretch of use today, it has been used since, since Roman times, which has wonderful implications uh, in terms of you know, what was going on in the early medieval period. You know, people were still keeping these roads open after the Romans left. So I set out and, and followed this road. And I, I was interested in Roman, in Roman. I've been since a child. I've been interested in Roman, Roman remains. I live near. To, I did live near Watling Street, where Watling Street passes Wall when I was growing up near Litchfield in Staffordshire. I used to get on my bike and cycle up to Wall and just and go and visit the ruins. And I think what I remember about that was less the facts. It's more the sort of feel. I liked being there and sort of amongst <laughs> the stubby walls and the hypercourse and um, so. And that's certainly one of the things I try and convey in the book, that kind of feeling of, of being being in touch with the past. So I walk the road. Uh, I've become very interested. Uh, you have to become interested in Roman roads in general uh, to, well, to understand the, this one road that I'm walking across the landscape. So obviously your research involved walking, as, as you said, and being actually out in yes. the countryside. And one of the things that is so compelling about your book is this idea that History is all around us, and if you just know how to look and you you have the skills and the knowledge, then you it's available to you. And one of the things that I found very interesting, I hadn't heard, I've obviously heard of metal dete- detectorists, and I'm a huge fan yes. of the um, TV series, which I think is one of the most brilliant things that's ever been made for yeah. television. Um, but you talked about um, people who are, I think, field walkers or something, something I would I maybe got that wrong yes and they can literally just walk through the landscape and look and see oh that's a piece of pottery from Anglo-Saxon tell us about that and did you ever go walking with someone like that who was able to help you I have been I I love that idea I'm terrible at it myself I have been out on field walking with as a as a local archaeologist here who who took me out some years ago and uh partitioned the field off into sort of sections and grids and you just walk it and you have to walk it with the intent to find particular stuff because you have to tune your eyes to to uh, the type of pot you're looking for so you have instructions otherwise you're picking up everything like I, I basically picked up a bag full of all sorts of basically flints <laughs> and stones there's a lot of flint around here and they're kind of false friends they they look like things they're not um but you, you're looking attuned to a particular type of, of pottery, of greyware, or maybe you're looking for something fancier, sort of uh, Roman slipware. And, and you basically pick it up off the fields and there might be, you might find bits of tiles. And uh, it's interesting in itself. I find the wonderful thing I found about field, field walking in particular, um, because the bit of my road that runs through, it runs through a section as we get into Essex, where in the 1980s, 
a very eminent landscape historian was uh, called Tom Williamson. He he walked it, I think, for his PhD. He walked this area there, which the road runs right to the middle of. And so the, the, the papers and his thesis survive, obviously. And they're, they're absolutely fascinating how it's not the pot is not just about telling us about Roman pottery and how that was made and where it might have been made and all lovely things that we're very interested in. But also, if you study the density of the pot compared to known sort of background densities, you can start to find uh, where the villas were and how likely it was there were villas in this area or where they where they farmed, whether they were farming out on the clay plateau, whether the woodlands had been cleared. Obviously, there's a huge debate back in sort of the 70s and 80s about you know the extent to which Iron Age Britain had been cleared of woodland, sort of destroying the image of the sort of Roman soldier hacking his way <laughs> yeah. through, through the wild. The wildwood when he got here because the... Iron Age Britons and had already got rid of the, the woodlands and things like field walking looking for pottery density can tell tell us where you know where woods were and where they've come back since Roman times um yeah it's I, I find I, I didn't know that and you can do the same with coins a sort of study of the density and then if you have sort of a gazetteer of places across the country and different densities of types of coins you can and pots you can uh, you can tell an incredible amount about uh, what was going on then Hello, it's Peter here. If Christopher's book has inspired you to explore the legacies of Roman Britain for yourself, then our partners at Ace Cultural Tours might have just the holiday for you. Ace has over 60 years of experience in group cultural travel, and they offer a wide selection of historical and archaeological itineraries, including two this summer, which investigate life at the northern edges of the Roman Empire. Their trip to the magnificent remains of Hadrian's Wall explores the extensive remains at Housesteads, Chesters and Vindolanda, where the famous writing tablets were uncovered in the company of archaeologist and former Time Team presenter Mark Corney. Mark is also leading a tour in June to discover the traces of prehistoric and Roman periods in the beautiful and atmospheric landscapes of Anglesey and Snowdonia. What better way to delve into the past than to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us? Find out more about travelling through time with ACE via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk Well, I think now we should begin our time travel. Um, So, Christopher, if you could travel back in time to a particular year, and I know this has been a difficult one for you because of the um, lack of certainty when it comes to dates but which year would we would yeah. you would you like to travel back to well I would like to travel back to AD 51 and uh, it's only mentioned to have been passing um, it's the last stand of Caraticus and I think he's an unsung hero we don't hear about him very much uh, he's there right at the beginning we know he's he and his brother Togadumnus are the only named leaders of the resist of the war against the Romans when the Romans invade they are the Roman they are the British military leaders. And AD 51 is sort of the end of the Caraticus story. And um, you can almost pitch the Roman invasion as a war against Caraticus and Togodumnus. You know, they 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 are the sons of Cunobelin, the great British king who dies shortly before the invasion. He was probably probably slightly too strong to say he was a client king of Rome, but uh he was uh he was obviously very connected to Rome and the Roman Empire and almost certainly paying tribute. And when he dies, the historians sort of positive, we have this kind of anti-Roman faction in the shape of these two sons, 
uh, Karatikas and Togadunnas Nay. And uh, they have another brother who initially, who flees to Rome and appeals to Caligula that he's, he's been stripped of his lands. And then they seem to invade below the south of the Thames into uh, the territory of the Atrebates. Uh, uh, and Verica, who's the king there, he flees to Rome and complains to Claudius. Uh, which precipitates the, the Roman invasion. They're the only two war leaders, so when they come in in 43, uh, it's Caraticus and Togodumnus who are fighting against them. The two, we have these two river battles of the Thames, uh, thought to be probably most likely the Medway and the Thames, uh, at which point Togodumnus is killed, leaving just Caraticus. And we don't really hear, after this, one of the river battles, and uh, we don't hear anything more about him. He sort of disappears. Some people write stories that he may have been at Camulodunum at Colchester when that falls, when the Emperor Claudius finally visits. Uh, but there's nothing in the, his, in the histories. It's, it's Cassius Dio who tells us that they were the war leaders at the beginning. Tacitus picks up the story later, the Roman historian Tacitus. And that is nothing, you know, in AD 51. So nothing else is heard about him. But Do we know where the territory was? Yes, so we're talking sort of Hertfordshire, we're sort of here, okay. so where, where I am, in sort of Hertfordshire, Essex area. So originally their, uh, their capital, of the Catavallone capital, so Cunabellin is, is the king of the Catavallone, so we're talking St Albans, and then they push into, when they take over the territory of the Trinovantes, and uh, so by this time their capital is probably at Colchester, at Camulodunum, and that's why we think the, Rom- the Roman army are headed, that's their first goal, is to take is to take Colchester. And before we go to your first scene, I would like to ask about the road situation because that was a very yes. interesting part of your book. This idea, and I loved how you just explained this in just using common sense, this idea that the Romans arrived and immediately built this enormous road network across the whole country Um and you actually talk about how many men it would have taken and how long to build how many miles of road. So talk about that, because I think that's really interesting and and maybe something that people haven't, I don't know, something I hadn't really thought of. Yes, of course, I think almost certainly. uh, Almost certainly there are roads here, and there's there's this big debate about to what extent the Romans built the roads here. Of course, there are Iron Age trackways here uh, and routes, many of them. uh, The topography dictates where lots of routes go, and the Romans would have used the same routes. The evidence for anyone else building roads like the Romans is practically non-existent, and they are all where they're engineered roads that will take wheeled traffic uh, across rivers. They built bridges. The amount of cost and expense and effort and labour that went into them is unique in antiquity. The Romans knew they were doing something extraordinary. Well, until the building of the railways, isn't it pretty much unique? Absolutely. Yeah, there isn't kind of an engineering endeavour comparable until the building of the railways, and another sort of essentially planned road building exercise until the building yeah. of the motorways uh, in Britain. I do think I do think that's amazing. And they continue to be relevant throughout history as well in terms of the way they, they dictate where battles are fought in the Middle Ages and how we travel around. And still today, if you were an economist and all you had was a map of Roman Britain and nothing else to go on, you could pretty well predict where they're... Sort of, where the activity is, <laughs> where people are getting wealthy. And, but they arrive here at Richborough, with the, as you say, in the, the invasion in 43. And we have to ask, you know, they don't... You can't imagine these surveyors are not <laughs> running out ahead of the army building this incredible engineered road. They go out and survey the territory and they build campaign roads. They you know, clear the way where they need to. Uh, they will find ways to cross bridges where they need to, but they're not building this sort of 
this beautifully engineered road with side ditches and uh, a surface that will stay dry throughout the year. That will come later once they've once the army have taken the territory, because it's probably a bit too dangerous to be building it in those circumstances anyway. The other reason I picked AD 51 is I love this idea that we start out with the Roman road number one. We talked earlier about Marguerite, who names road number one, and that's, that, starts at, that starts out from Richborough and eventually finds its way via London and St Albans up through part of Wall, where I, near where I grew up, and eventually out to Roxeter, nearly on the Welsh border, uh, and by AD 51, we know there is a fortress at Roxeter. So we think, you know, Watling, Watling Street, Roman Road Number 1, has made it there. Uh, it's not the big legionary fortress that comes later, but there is a fort there probably so that they, occupies some of They think that they've already troops. built that road the whole way to Roxeter. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. It's only, it's, it's not even yeah, 10 years, is it? It is extraordinary. No. So, yeah, that's, it's incredible. Now, whether it was yeah, all... Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. difficult to date Roman roads, so whether it's all engineered to the same standard by that point, we don't They've know. They've made a start. But it's nice to think that, yeah, here's, this, here's road number one. Yeah. It's kind of finished by AD 51, and there's, there's the evidence. OK, well, let's now go to your first scene, which is a battle, I think. Yes, yeah, so it's the last stand of uh, Caraticus or Caratacus, and we heard about him at the the Roman invasion in 43. We hear nothing more about him until um, the conventional date is, is 51, um, where we find out he Tacitus picks up the story and comes in sort of in media res, as if we should all know who Caraticus is. So it's sort of in, in, in Tacitus's lost books, he's, we've got to imagine he's written more about what Tacitus, uh, what Caraticus has been up to during these, these years. But he's there and he seems to be leading the resistance still against the Romans. This is eight years on. He's with the Siluris in southern Wales. And there's a new Roman governor has arrived in AD 47, um, Astorius Scapula. And he has to put down various uprisings uh, amongst the Iceni, amongst the Brigantes in the north. Uh, and then he, he turns his attention on Wales and the Siluris. He's obviously quite successful and pushes Caraticus back. And sort of Tacitus tells us that Caraticus is already very famous at this point. Uh, and has been leading, we get this idea he's been leading the resistance against Rome for all this entire period, but he's obviously been pushing that back now into Wales, and we don't know how, it, how, he, how he got there, but, in, but you already sort of get this idea of this incredible, the fact that he, he's come so far from home, <laughs> he's travelled, yeah. he's now in <clears throat> Wales, he obviously attracts incredible loyalty, his personal loyalty, how many... How much of his original army he's, he's been able to take with him, we don't know. To what extent it's a confederacy of tribes he's, he's commanding, we don't really know. But he's there in southern Wales. They get pushed back. He falls back probably beyond the River Severn into the territory of the Ordovikis, which is the, the tribe that seemed to have much of northern Wales. And this is where, being pursued by a scapula, who seems to have brought perhaps as many as 20,000 troops with him by this point, He's engineered this situation where he has two legions, uh, a number of auxiliary cohorts and perhaps some cohorts from other legions, and he's pursuing Caraticus into, uh, into the foothills. Obviously, it doesn't suit the Britons to have a sort of great set-piece battle. The Romans are going to win, and by this point, Caraticus knows what the Romans are capable of. He was there at the beginning at the invasion, so you know, he much prefers sort of guerrilla tactics. But uh, for some reason, he's forced into choosing a battle site. Maybe there's a lot of economic warfare going on there and destroying the 
the crops and burning down farms, and he's forced into this set-piece battle. Uh, but he gets, Tacitus tells us, he chooses, Caraticus chooses the site of this battle, the territory, and it's on the far side of the river, uh, the sides are very steep, it looks like there's some kind of earthworks fortification there, and they, they put boulders in place to impede the, the Romans. And Tacitus said that uh, Scapula arrives there initially very confident because of the overwhelming force he has with him but when he sees the Britons in front of him and the way they'd constructed the, 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 site, the battle site they'd chosen and the way they'd constructed their fortifications and the placement of their troops and the fact that Caraticus apparently is walking around and very typical of Roman historians Tacitus has him sort of jeering everyone up telling them um, not quite truthfully that their forefathers had sent Julius Caesar packing, so they now have to do the same thing. It doesn't quite ring very true for what <laughs> Caracas might really have said, but it's very typical of what Tacitus might write. Um, and uh, it's a Scapula's very anxious when he sees this site and made quite nervous by it. But the Roman troops, having sort of built the Britons up into this formidable enemy for the Romans to, uh, to defeat, Tacitus then flips it round and says that the Roman troops are very eager for battle and they'll say, Valor will conquer all. Uh, and by this point, while this is happening, Scapula has been able to survey the, the topography and worked out which routes to go, how to ford this difficult river. And so we've, we don't actually know where this site was, which I also I like because that's a common theme. All these sort of great battles, the Battle of Watling Street where Boudicca fought, we don't know where that was. So it sort of gives, it allows historians, lots of archaeologists, uh, lots of fun and you know, it's their pastime trying to find out where the, these battles were. The Battle of Montegraupius in the 80s, up with uh, Calgacus in Scotland. We don't know where that was, uh, but people spend lots of time trying to figure it out. What well, a popular candidate for the uh, the last stand of Caraticus is uh, a hill fort and a, mine, a copper mine called Clanny uh, Minock. And there's some evidence that there might have been siege camps built around it. Uh, it's contested. There was certainly there's evidence of a series of Roman ca- uh, Roman temporary camps built around, which may be marching camps, maybe construction camps, possibly siege camps, which would be the only known siege camps in in Britain. The Romans get the upper hand; they march up. The Britons are throwing rocks down on them as they march up the hill, and they form uh, the famous testudo with the, yeah. the tortoise, where they put their shields over their heads. And they, I, you can't imagine how they manage to keep walking up a hill in that formation, but they do. They're able to get their axes and pull down the rocks that are impeding their progress. And suddenly the, t- the tide turns and uh, Caraticus is eventually routed. But he's a slippery character and he escapes. So, But it's the last battle. It's kind of, you kind of see it as this, I kind of, it's, it's like the end of the beginning, if you like, of the Roman invasion. And is there a sense in the sources, uh, and I suppose that all of the sources are Roman, so perhaps th- this is not the right question but is there a sense of the last stand of the british and them kind of having this idea that this is it it's it's do or die or or not really i think it's sort of the fact that tacitus and he is our only source for this is it's tacitus and as i've said the archaeology is very slight um but what we get a sense of is that caraticus himself is super important it's all about him. The okay. focus is on him and on capturing him and the fact that Scapula has been he's pursuing this campaign to pursue him. Probably simplistic. Uh, I think by now we know that the Romans never had some kind of the old idea that the Fosse way to the Roman road from Exeter to Lincoln, which 
almost separate, separates the Highland from the Lowland Territory in Britain. The idea that that was the original frontier, I don't think we've believed that for quite some time. There's enough evidence now of sort of early ventures into Wales to perhaps in pursuit of minerals. Some people think to get to Anglesey to finish off the Druids. But uh, oh, yeah. I think even early on, the, Roman, the Romans want to get in, into Wales and we have enough evidence now of quite early sort of Claudian of, of camp, camps, marching camps and, uh, and, and forts. Caraticus escapes and escapes. what happens next? So scene two, Caraticus escapes and he heads for the territory of the Brigantes, which have most of the north of England. Uh, they're led by a queen, Cartamandua, and they're a client of Rome. She's a, they're a client, she's a client queen of Rome. And it's a real mystery why he would go to her, because <laughs> Tacitus tells us, he ha- actually Tacitus gives us two accounts of what happens, one in his annals and then later in his histories. And he says in the first one, pretty much that she put him in chains and hands him over. And that's kind of it, which kind of leaves to history this idea of, uh, of a great betrayal, sort of this British queen betraying this this. British chieftain, which is obviously ridiculously simplistic because they didn't have that kind of idea of nationhood. They were just separate separate tribes with their territories. And it probably, uh, it would not have been in her interest at all to join with Caraticus. Um, she was you know, she was getting on very, very well with Rome at this point. Another version of the story may well be, we might understand that actually she's this great diplomatic figure. What if Caraticus, it's been suggested that he goes to her because she's a client of Rome. He realises the game is up. He's lost his troops. There's really nowhere else to go. So he goes to someone who will broker a deal. Um, so he goes to her and she brokers the deal with the Romans about the nature of his capture and what's going to happen to him and his family. Because I forgot to mention that at the, at the end of the, the of the battle, his daughters and his wife were captured and his brothers were captured. So, you know, that's probably the Romans have some leverage against him now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe he wants to hand himself over. Uh, but so I, I like that idea that um, that she's this very powerful queen who is able to broker with Rome and broker the circumstances or the conditions of of his handover to uh, to the Romans. So it would know, have been nice to have been there to see to see how that unfolds because she is a fascinating character. And again, because Boudicca overshadows all, we don't hear so much about her, but. She has this very sort of fractious relationship with her consort, Venutius, who is constantly trying to take over the Brigantes. He leads a revolt against them, which may be to do with the fact that she hands over Caraticus. People have speculated, certainly Tacitus implies that a large portion of the tribe didn't agree with Caraticus being handed over. And so Venutius has this uprising and fights back against her and tries to, uh, t- tries to take the Brigantes. And the, the Romans come to Cartamandua's assistance, defeat Venutius and he flees. She stays in power. But um, in AD 69, the sort of year of the four emperors, when Rome has all its own troubles, Venutius takes another chance uh, and defeats Cartamandua and they managed to get some auxiliary troops to her but not in time to to fight back basically to rescue her and we we don't know what happens to her after that some people speculate that she's taken she goes and lives in Rome she's taken to Rome she's probably looked after because she's been a very loyal sort of uh, Roman client queen uh, but uh, in the end Venutius gets gets the upper hand so she has a very interesting story in her own right yeah, and it's also 
interesting that you know it wasn't just as simple as the Romans came and invaded they all there were already all these relationships and you know some people were pragmatic and possibly thought well it'd be quite nice to have some people here building roads for us and uh, arriving with lots of delicious olive oil um, from (laughs) southern Italy (laughs) okay so then what happens next your final scene my final scene well this is another reason I chose this because I like the idea that Caracas is pretty well travelled. He comes from, you know, his heartlands. He probably comes from Colchester. He ends up in Wales and in northern Wales. He's uh, at the court of Cartamandua, which was probably at, at Stanick, uh, near Scotch Corner, between Scotts Corner and Piercebridge. And then he's taken to Rome. So he travels all the way to Rome. And my, my final scene is, is in Rome. So I've tried to sort of guess how, how he got there. Uh, lots of ways he, he could get to Rome from there. But certainly we've got to have Roman roads involved for obvious reasons. Uh, but if you if we imagine him travelling down from the Pennines to Scotch Corner, where he could pick up Deer Street, the great Roman road that goes north, and he would travel to York, one of the major Roman cities, from York to Bruff on the Humber. Roads were phenomenally important in the Roman Empire, but so was river travel and, and sea travel. And he's probably going to get, get on a ship on the Humber. And we imagine him being taken to Boulogne, and then from Boulogne, probably getting on another ship and going around the coast and ending up in Bordeaux. And then he would pick up a Roman road. So he'd, he'd head, across, head across France on a great uh, Via Aquitania uh, to Narbonne, then a ship across the Mediterranean to probably at that point to uh, Ostia Antica, to the Roman port. And he ends up at the, the court of, of, of Claud- the Emperor Claudius. Now... What happens next? Maybe this is part of the deal that Cartamando has brokered. Total speculation. Uh, but things work out surprisingly well for Caraticus. So he is paraded. There's a, a victory parade. Um, Claudius sits in a tribunal. And so does Agrippina. So we have another powerful woman, Claudius's, Claudius's wife, who at this point is getting more and more powerful because she's angling for her son Nero to take over uh, from Claudius. And Tacitus sort of tells us quite disapprovingly, I think, because it's against all convention that she's sat separately to Claudius on her own. So in her own tribunal, sort of at the same height, the Praetorian Guard have been armed, which is extremely unusual in Roman history. They march past and salute both Claudius and Agrippina. Uh, Loads of sort of war booty is paraded by. Then on comes the family and the captives from their last battle. So his family is, Caraticus's family are there too? Yeah, Kratika's family are there, so his children and his wife and his brothers. And Tacitus sort of has them sort of, uh, I suppose, embarrassing themselves. They're groveling and begging for mercy. But Caraticus isn't. You know, Caraticus stands before nobly before the emperor. And it's sort of, it's sort of a scene much loved by sort of painters later where you see him like, a, like an 18th century actor with his hand on his breast and his finger pointing to the sky, extemporising. And Tacitus puts in his mouth one of these sort of speeches that Tacitus likes to write. Caraticus's speech to Claudius, he said, Had I had as great a measure of success as of noble birth and good fortune, I would have entered the city a friend rather than a captive, nor would you have disdained, given my descent from illustrious forebears and control of numerous peoples, to welcome me with treaty and peace. My present lot is disfiguring for me, for you, however splendid, I had horses, men, weapons, wealth. What wonder if I lost them unwillingly? 
If you desire to control everyone, does it follow that everyone accepts slavery? Had immediate capitulation preceded extradition, neither my fortune nor your glory would have grown illustrious. My execution will be followed by forgetting. But if you keep me safe, I will be an everlasting example of your clemency. Clever. So it's quite a clever, clever, clever <laughs> bit of diplomacy. It's quite cunning. So did you see he, why Karatska's been so he, successful, <laughs> silver tongue. Did he survive? Did he survive? Did and he survives. Ah, and so Claudius, sort of taken by this speech of the, the noble British chieftain, uh, gives him him and his, his family freedom. And do they live their years out in Rome? They're said to go on to live on in Rome. We don't really hear what happens, but there's a, there's a tiny piece in... Uh, Cassius Dio, who, remember, he sort of has these two mentions to Craticus, right at the beginning, when he says he's the war leader at the beginning of the Roman invasion. And then after this point, he mentions him in Rome after he's been given his freedom. And he says, I have to paraphrase, but he sort of says why he's walking around Rome and he says, look at this amazing city. Why, why would you, having all this, envy our poor hovels? And that's kind of <laughs> Caraticus's final words. <laughs> As he, he lives out his life in Rome. And maybe if Cartamandua comes there in sort of 69, maybe they meet up again. And, it's amazing, and, uh, the thought. Someone should write that. Yeah, they should. They really should. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad the story had a happy ending for Karatikas. Yes. Um, and so if you could have picked something up from one of these scenes, a memento to take with you back to the present, um, what would it be? It's really difficult, isn't it? Because you want to invent something that you hope would exist that would solve some mystery. But um, I think you can do that. A, you can do that. I think. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm going to go with something fairly obvious, but it's a coin. I'm just going to go with a coin, okay. that, a coin with Karatikas on it, because they are pretty interesting anyway. They're so rare and, and fairly controversial. There was a, a gold stator with seemed to have Karatikas's name on, which has been found, uh, it was found in the 19th century, and various people have argued that it was Karatikas or it was a different Karatikas or but I think most most experts now will accept it was a, a coin of Karatikas uh looks very much like the Iron Age coins of, of Knoblin and also of Karatikas's uncle who was also issuing coins at this time and then in 2016 a a very small silver coin about less than a centimeter across was was found which has C-A-R on one side and C-U-N on the other side which is widely acknowledged as it's been struck with Karatikas and Cunobelin. So it makes that connection that this is the Karatikas who was the son of Cunobelin and Cunobelin. Yeah, I would like to have uh, brought back one, either the silver coin or the gold coin. I don't mind which because they're incredibly rare. I think there's only about four of them known. <laughs> and where are the ones that, that, that are known? Are they in a museum somewhere? Yeah, I think the gold one, the stator, is in uh, the British Museum. I'm not sure what happened to the 2016 one, but... There were some others that were already in museums that were then after the find of that one in 2016 were then recognised that people had misread them. So it had been assumed it said the C-U-N for Cunobelin. It had been assumed it said C-A-M on the back for Camelodunum for Colchester. But actually it says C-A-R. So that's why we now have, I think, about four of these silver coins, which proved the link. Because there is, other than Tacitus, there is very little evidence apart from these few coins and there's a mention in an 11, a manuscript from about the 1100s, a genealogy, a Welsh genealogy, which, which is in the British Museum, which says Caraticus, son of Cunobelin, son of Tasciovanus, which is kind of the descent we believe it should be. So other than that, 
we're totally reliant, as usual, on the sort of romanticising Roman authors. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fr- so frustrating, isn't it, that there's not more information about that pre-Roman period in this country. Um, I have yeah. to ask you, do, do you, have you ever been metal detecting? I'm sure I'm, that's not how you're supposed to, what you're supposed to call yeah. it. Have you ever done I it? I haven't. You haven't? No, I haven't. I haven't. Would you, no, would you I, not I interview... be tempted to? Yes, of course. I've, I'd give it a go. I'm really impatient. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't find something spectacular, like a record within of five minutes, you'd be within off five it. minutes, I'd be, yeah, I'd be gone. It's the same with with field walking. I like to. When you ask me about field walking, I like when my children were little. I liked to go field walking and pretend that I was finding things. <laughs> I found it really interesting interviewing the detectorists. That was almost by chance as I was walking the road one day. There was a sort of convention of detectorists that descended on this field. The road was coming through, so I started speaking to them and then went and interviewed the people who had set up the, the detecting day. And they'd been, detect- yeah. they'd been given permission by a landowner to detect various fields the road was running through, which is which, which fantastic luck, really, just walking through that day and finding them, because that makes a, a very interesting chapter in the book. Yeah, I mean, the idea of you know, getting that ping and finding something... Yeah, would be amazing. Uh, it would be amazing would be just amazing. to happen upon things. Yeah, I have, I've cheated. I've bought, I've bought coins. When I found out coins have been found in particular areas, I thought I've been and bought one the same. <laughs> but it would I mean, be so much better to find it yourself. <laughs> yeah, we bought one of my daughters a metal detector when she was young, and we found ourselves having to actually bury oh, things fantastic. under the you know in our in our garden so that she could find something because yeah she got a bit frustrated. Um, and I wonder, does your local area um, hold any other secrets that might? Um, turn into a book or is it too early to say that no it's, it's not too early. perhaps but not my next book my next book's a little bit of a departure uh, I don't talk about this in the book but uh, I kind of said earlier where if, if I tried to write about Roman roads and I'd set out I, I would have got stuck on Roman road one and that's kind of what's happened with the things I was interested in the local area is that I had a map I had a map made many years ago and in the very top corner of this map are two things and I was going to write a pamphlet to go with the map to describe things on it. And the first thing was a dragon, and the second thing is a Roman road. And I've written the book about the dragon. You know, this, this paragraph in a pamphlet turned into a book, and uh, and the, the, the next one turned into another book. I, I think that project's done. They're very separate books, but they do complement each other. Hollow Places and Roman Road. Someone said recently it's a good companion volume in terms of the way you think, ways of thinking about the past. Um, and ways of seeing, going out and seeing through different eyes. I like the idea of making strange and making people see things afresh. And often it's not through, sometimes through my own eyes, but also by interviewing people and reading lots and you know, learning to see through the eyes of a landscape historian or you know, a poet or an art critic or however I'm comp- contemplating the thing at the time. Um, yeah, the next book, I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but it's, it's okay. historical and it's literary, but it's, uh, it's, a sort of, it's not rooted in the locale and the landscape here okay well i look forward to it and i have your email address now so i don't have to google you next time i'll be able to just badger you and thank you this has been an absolute joy thank you so much oh thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it thank you that was me violet moller fulfilling a long-held wish to interview christopher hadley the other day i cannot recommend his books highly enough both hollow places and his recent publication the road A Story of Romans and Ways to the Past. You can find out more on our website, tttpodcast.com. Until next time, goodbye.